I want to take you into the book of Romans this morning, and I do have a title for the message. It's called Into the Arena. That sounds good, doesn't it? It's not a boxing message, don't worry. Do you know, just um, this past weekend, um, uh, Annie and I, my wife, she's unable to be with me today, but uh, uh, we met while I was on team here at Kensington Temple, and we got married then, and I kind of brought her up to London, and we began married life here. We've been married 30 years, Victor, not 50, <laughs> so still great respect, and, uh, uh, but after... Um, 30 years of marriage, uh, I, I had made the mistake of agreeing to be away speaking at River Camp uh, on our wedding anniversary weekend. And uh, so at the last minute, realizing my mistake, I booked us a few days away, left the River Camp after I'd spoken, um, and uh, we got away to Rome for about four days. So it was wonderful. I'm not just boasting, just telling you. You know, I just put in the work there for a few days, renewing our marriage. And that uh, we met in Italy 31 years ago, so that was a kind of a special few days. And I'm going to take you right now uh, into the book of Romans, chapter 13. And not just because I was in Rome eating pasta for a few days. <laughs> There's a link there somewhere. Romans chapter 13, and we're going to read from verse 11. This is Paul writing. Paul, this extraordinary man that we're introduced to in the New Testament, he'd, he'd started out as a fanatical, zealous young Jew. He'd been taught by the greatest scholars of his day in Jerusalem, and, 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 and he had wanted nothing more than to excel in the study of the, the, the scriptures and to serve God. As a young man, he's in Jerusalem around the time that Jesus is crucified. And, and soon afterwards, as the new believers in Jesus begin to emerge in the city and begin to preach in his name and begin to do outstanding things in the name of Jesus, Paul, then known as Saul of Tarsus, is a young, zealous, leading Jewish scholar and follower, not of Jesus, but of the Jewish faith, who we are first introduced in Acts chapter 9 as being one who is an enemy, in fact, slightly before that in Acts 6, as an enemy of Jesus and the people that follow him. He's a fanatical young Jew. But one day in Acts 9, you can read it for yourself at some time if you're not familiar with the story on his way to Damascus in Syria to arrest and really throw into chains those who follow the name of Christ and who serve Jesus. This young jihadi of his time wanting to serve God but really believing he was doing something that was the will of God but an enemy of Jesus has a vision is thrown from his horse. And, and in that moment, everything changes for Paul. On the Damascus Road, we use that phrase, don't we? A Damascus Road experience. He was the first one to have it. And it changed everything for him. The enemy of Christ, overnight, immediately in fact, became a loyal, committed worshipper and follower of this Jesus that he had opposed. 
And at that Damascus Road experience in Acts 9, we hear how this guy's life changed forever. For the rest of his days, he would go in a different way. He would serve Jesus at the very cost of everything he had. There was a time when he would say, I came to consider everything else as rubbish, as garbage, except Jesus. He so won this man's heart. Now, years later, some 25 years or so later, he's been going around the world speaking about Jesus in Greece, in in Asia Minor, everywhere he could. He's had a tough journey. It hasn't been plain sailing. In fact, there have been great highs, but many lows. He's been left for dead. He's been stoned. He's been uh, uh, persecuted. They've conspired against his life. But Jesus has brought him through each situation, and he's become a great leader in the church. Here he is writing to the church in Rome, one place that he has not yet visited. So let's read the verses. 13, verse 11 to 14. Paul says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you, believers in Rome, to wake up from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I don't know whether you've ever wanted to to kind of visit a particular place. You've had a a bucket list, perhaps, uh, of places you you would want to go. Uh, Don't call them out now, but, you know, if that's you, maybe you've thought, one day I'd like to go to. The the book of Romans is written as this extraordinary uh, high point of Christian faith and Christian teaching from this man, Paul, who really loves Jesus with all his heart, who's going all over the then known world on these journeys, missionary journeys, we call them, where everywhere he goes, he wants nothing more than just to share the love of Jesus and the love of God with anyone he meets. He's looking for a way in in Athens, in Corinth, in Philippi. But he's never yet been to Rome. Rome, the centre of the Roman Empire. The place of political power, the place of cultural ascendancy, the, the place that everybody wants to go. Paul has a deep and longing desire to one day get to Rome. He knows some people who are now there. He knows some that have become believers in Jesus, followers of Christ, disciples who are now in Rome. He knows some of them by name and reputation of what their story has been. Some he knows personally. If you read the final chapter of Romans, sometimes in in the next week or two, you will find that there's a list of names there in Romans 16. It's like a window, a a kind of a, 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 just a close-up under the skin of Rome of the time and the baby beginnings of the church in Rome. Not in fine buildings. I walked the streets just a few days ago and 
was astonished by just how many churches there are now in Rome. There are so many of them. Historic buildings over centuries that are built. Back then, none. But there were people. How many of you know God is searching after people? Looking for one, looking for a family, looking for someone to begin something with in a community, in a, maybe in a town, a region, an area that, where, where there has been no life. There has been nothing of a testimony about him. Paul knows there are people in Rome who now follow Jesus and he longs to be there, but he's not yet been. So what he does is he begins to write a letter, we call it a book, but it was given as a letter to the church in Rome that would have passed around the grapevine of the day. No Facebook, no Instagram, no Snapchat, no, no Wi-Fi signal. Hello, different times. And they're just beginning to share the story around the world and so he writes this amazing book. Just a few uh, weeks ago, I was as I often am in a bookshop. It was Waterstones, but other bookshops are available. And I had a look around the, the new and noteworthy. I love to just see what's out there, to read stuff maybe outside of my own knowledge and understanding. That's not difficult because I don't know a lot. Um, and, and I saw a book on the shelf that caught my attention. It was simply titled, How to Be a Christian. Now, this wasn't KT Bookshop. This, this was an unexpected place. And there it was, leaping out at me uh, on the new and noteworthy. And, and, and it, I saw the title, it, it, and look below, it was written by C.S. Lewis. Anybody heard of him? C.S. Lewis, he's now no longer alive, uh, not in this world, but he's with the Lord. He's known for Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and that saga, but he was also an Oxford professor of English literature a great man of learning and scholarship. He had spent years in his life not really believing in God, not really having an active faith in Jesus. But then he writes the story of a time when uh, suddenly, actually, there came together a number of things in his life and he calls it uh, being surprised by joy as a great intellect and a great man of scholarship and learning came face to face with the reality of Jesus and his love for C.S. Lewis. From that point on, like Paul, this man of great intellect uh, and, and great scholarship and, and great fame in his own world became known for his Christian testimony and witness. He's written book after book that is have helped others begin to learn more about Christ. And here, the publisher had decided it was time to put together some things that Lewis said. Not his great high theology or his literary prowess, but just some basic, simple things on how to be a Christian. I, I couldn't help but buy the book. And I saw it as a surprising thing to write in 21st century Britain in 2018 when we think we know that we know, when we might expect that others know. But I want to say it to me became a bit of a signpost that God spoke to my heart that it is time for us to revisit some things. It is time for us to know who we believe in and what he wants us to do 
with his active presence in our lives, in our hearts, in our community of faith for the sake of those that don't yet know him. I, I jumped back in my memory to a time about 10 years ago when in Cardiff, the church that I left Kensington Temple to go and, and, and be involved in, uh, there in the centre of Cardiff, um, we had a, a, a ring at the bell on a Tuesday morning. Tuesdays were quite special to us at the time. We were going through a season where it always seemed like somebody would knock the door or ring the bell on a Tuesday and it would be not just a, you know, a, a kind of a, an appointment time but a divine appointment time. And this is one of those. I was meeting with a lady who led one of our healing ministries in the church and, and I had a knock at the door. It was from my colleague, uh, Steve Ball, who's one of the pastors there. And Steve said, can I just interrupt for a moment? Come and meet somebody. He asked me to come with him into a room where he just spent about 15, 20 minutes with a, a, a young guy from Pakistan, tall, handsome young fella that had rung the bell and said, can I speak to somebody? And as I began to hear the story of this guy, it was clear he was from a very well-to-do, very influential family in the north region, northwest up by the Afghanistan border, and had been raised in, a, in that culture and as a, as a Muslim. One night he'd had a dream, he told us. He'd seen in the night, uh, 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 as it were, his home. They lived in a huge complex and it, 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 everything was being swept away and everybody with it. And he was holding on for dear life to a, like a pole of some kind. And, and as he was doing that and about to be swept away, a hand came down and a voice said, put your hand in mine. And then immediately he instantly woke up. He didn't really understand the dream, but he knew that it was a life-saving moment for him. So he asked some people he knew very discreetly because he was aware already that that would not be an easy thing to talk about in his very zealous but closed community. But he was travelling internationally. He, again, influence and prestige and power and finances had given him the opportunity to travel the world. So wherever he would go, he would try to find out about various religions to see if there was a, a clue to who and had spoken to him in that dream and what he should do. He'd come to my city in Cardiff, where I still live today, and he was staying with some people from his culture, from his home community. He walked into their front room one day and they had a film on the television screen. It was the Jesus film. Some of you have heard of it. And suddenly, as the Jesus on the film was speaking and performing a, a miracle, he had an instant impression that it was Jesus that had spoken to him in his dream. He said to us, not the voice, it was a, obviously it was an actor, not the voice, not the, I didn't see a face, but I knew it was Jesus. And he'd come to the church and rung the bell. He asked us this question, so if I go to the imam and ask how do I become a Muslim? They will tell me. What are the steps in order to become a Muslim? So I'm asking you, how do I become a Christian? Amen. Wow. That was a moment to interrupt a meeting. And my colleague Steve had the joy over the next little while of leading this young guy to faith in Jesus. Actually, he already had faith in Jesus. Explaining to him the way of salvation and welcoming him as a brother in Christ. The next few weeks, he accelerated in his discipleship 
He began to grow, not because we quickly got him latched on to somebody that could help him. We did do that, but he, he just began to read the Bible. He began to read the New Testament. He began to read the Gospels. He began to read the book of Romans. And he would come back to us and say, hey, it says this. Jesus said, if any of you looks back, you're not worthy. Those of you that follow me, you need to be willing to forsake. And he began to then unfold his story. He'd gone to the home office within the week. And he told them, putting his ticket before them, I have a ticket to go back, here we go, but I now cannot go home, I've become a Christian. And those that I've spoken to are telling me they will kill me if I return home. What do I do? Well, the lady that helped him that day was a Catholic lady. And she let him know. She, as he told her his story of conversion, she asked him one question. She said, uh, so you, you've become a Christian. Why, why haven't you become a Catholic? <laughs> Word of wisdom needed here. He said, well, I'm just a baby Christian, maybe. <laughs> Over those next few weeks and months, this young new believer in Christ, like young Saul of Tarsus, like a rather more mature C.S. Lewis, began to go through a new birth experience that changed everything. But what was powerful to us was words and verses we'd preached from, we'd heard a thousand times, came alive in his mouth all over again. And began to speak to our hearts and stir us about what it means to be a real follower of Jesus. In all cultures at all times, Paul is writing to Rome where he longs to be. It would take him three years from writing this book before he gets there. And he's writing to them knowing they're in the, the epicenter of world events, the place of power and influence and culture, knowing also that it will be tough for them there. Rome is open to any God at the time, as long as that God can be subservient to, secondary to Caesar. Not only that, but Nero is Caesar, one of the most ruthless and crazy leaders the world has ever seen. So in Rome, Paul knows that those who follow Christ are going to need strength, are going to need determination, are going to need to know the reality of his presence. And he knows that although Rome has a, a huge arena called the Colosseum, that the very act of living for Jesus in Rome will be like being in the arena. Guys, I want to say to you today, you and I, are living in the arena. I remember Pastor Collins saying many years ago, I did take notes in Bible school all those years ago, and there was a great quote that I have not been able to source since, uh, of a, a church historian saying this, the early church did not begin on a welcoming stage, but in a hostile arena of competing faiths. I wrote it down, I've never forgotten it. It's absolutely true. These believers he's writing to in Rome weren't on a welcoming stage where Rome is rolling out the red carpet, come and tell us. But it's the place of the arena, of the gladiators. It's the place of persecution and hardship and 
things that would be unleashed upon them. And they're not the celebrities in town. They're ordinary people who get in and embed themselves and immerse themselves in the life of the city, the life of the community. And Paul writes to them with a passion that they would really know Jesus. I want to say three things about his priorities because I believe that they are relevant to us today. That we are called to live from now on in the arena of the workplace, of the neighbourhood, of the family, in an increasingly secular and spiritually muddy world to live clear lives for Jesus and to give people every opportunity to know him, not just here, but here, to have those Damascus Roads moments that change everything. How many of you believe that God can still change everything in a moment? That he can do it for us, but he can also do it for ours. Those that are in our world, those we love, we care about, but are not yet convinced, not yet where you are perhaps in your personal faith, not yet surrendered to him, not yet seen it for themselves. Like C.S. Lewis, like Paul did. I want to say to you with all my heart today, I believe that there's a, a message here that Paul writes to them that is relevant to us. And it is this. In simplest form, it is this. It is wake up. That's what I've read. A, a, a moment in the midst of a, a book of great verses, amazing life scriptures that we can recite and take to heart and, and feed on. But this is just a very, almost a moment aside. You know the time, he said. What he means there is you know the times you're living in. How many of you know the times we're living in? Our tough times for people of faith. Challenging times for our society. Around the world, you just look beyond our own borders. This is a, a, a world church, always has been. At least as long as many of us can remember, God has brought people from the nations here. And so we, we have that resonance, that sensitivity to what's happening around the globe. A joy to hear Victor speak today. Victor was an elder here when I was a trainee in leadership and ministry here. And uh, 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 even then was, was touching the Arab world in a remarkable way. And been so encouraging to renew fellowship today. But you know, this is a church immediately where we are from places. And we find ourselves in a place. What does God want to do with us in the place that we are positioned, planted, or, 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 or somehow um, find ourselves from now on? And how can we live? Paul says, how are you then going to live in Rome with all that might be coming and all that's going on? And he begins to tell them that it's a wake-up time. It's not a slap. It's, it's an encouraging sense of saying, you are God's people. Don't be afraid. Don't be caught out. But start to live differently from now on. I want to give you three keys that I think are not just for them, but for us. That the gospel had made it to Rome was extraordinary. The centre of the Roman Empire. This immersed church in the centre, uh, sorry, in the middle of, of, of the city. It's not a gathered one. They don't have the, the buildings to meet in yet. Those would be centuries away. Proud Rome is a spiritual stew. But this book speaks way beyond its time. It would have a huge impact on Martin Luther in the 1500s. A, a German priest in the Catholic Church found in this book a revelation 
He's just like, they've been missing the fact that the church doesn't save anybody. It's Jesus who saves. Just good works don't make us right with God. In this book, Luther found that there was a message of life that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus comes to save us all from our sins. And that faith in him and him alone was the way to be right with God. And he spoke out about it and and the rest is history. The great reformation came out of Luther and others experiencing the freshness again of that message into their times. Hundreds of years later in East London, there was a man called John Wesley who had returned from America where he'd gone as a minister to preach to the, the, the colony then, I know it's not now, but back then it was, and he went speaking about Jesus, but never having had an experience that had changed his life with Christ himself. So he came back totally wrecked, empty, felt a failure. He had no fruit for what he'd done that he could see. One night in a chapel in Aldersgate Street, in the east of London, he walked in and he heard a preacher preaching from Luther's commentary on Romans. And Wesley says he felt his heart was strangely warmed and the life of Jesus came alive in him. Wesley, Luther. Just decades ago here in London, there's a great preacher at Westminster Chapel called Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He found, as he was teaching in Westminster Chapel, such a rich vein, a rich mine of spiritual power and truth in this book that it, was, it became a lifelong compulsion for him to write commentaries on this book. You can still get them today. Romans, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you need a big bookcase just to contain them. And what I'm saying is this book was not just for one time and one season but has inspired men and women like us in different times to believe. Here are the three things I haven't forgotten. Paul's response in tough times, in the arena of a competing culture and a challenging uh, uh, mixture of faiths, is not to run, not to escape, not to just go inward, but to stand and to begin to swim against the tide to begin to live differently, not arrogantly and self-righteously, but just to begin to shine, to show as well as tell that Jesus changes people from the inside out and that he is the one who offers the free gift of eternal life. So Paul begins to give them some priorities. In actual fact, Romans is very deep, but it's also very simple. Bible commentator I was reading this week said it's all about Jesus. You read Romans, it's all about Jesus. The beginning, he says, I'm not afraid and I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For to some it is foolishness, but to us it is the power of God unto salvation. Not ashamed of Jesus. Paul begins in Romans by saying, be clear in Rome, be clear in the arena that you're in about the gospel. Guys, I began with an illustration of of a book that's recently been repackaged. It's not just a publishing 
kind of a marketing gimmick. I believe it's a, it's a, it's a signpost of our times that we kind of need a book again to say, how do you become a Christian in the West, in the UK? How do you become? Because people don't really have a clue. And there will be people who think that there are all kinds of obstacles in the way and all kinds of cul-de-sacs that they might go down. But God wants a people in the arena of the city, in the arena of every work environment, every family, every neighborhood, community, who will know how to show others the way to him, who will know what new life is about, who will know how people can get free of all the stuff that holds them and has held us. So Paul says in Rome, be clear about the gospel. It's time in this book to get back into what it means to be saved, forgiven, set free from a life without God and to begin to live the new adventure of trusting him completely with our lives. Not coerced or forced or made to, but because we choose to. People will start to be not just believers, but disciples. Not just what we believe, but how we choose to live to become more like him. Is there an amen in the house this morning? So Paul begins to say, guys, in the arena, we need to be clear about the gospel. I bought the book. I'm reading Lewis again. Not Wynne Lewis, who used to be here, but C.S. Lewis. They get everywhere. I'm reading him not because I don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but I want to get it down. I want to get it fresh. I want to get it in ways that might surprise me and be ready for more opportunities that are to come. Paul says, be clear about the gospel. He also says, be clear about your identity. Guys in Rome, Rome was the place. If you were a citizen of Rome, you boasted about it. Oh yes, you did, at customs, if they had such a thing. and They invented the customs, I think. You, a Roman citizen, if you were a Roman citizen, you were somebody in that world. There was a time when in Jerusalem, Paul gets into some, some real problems there and is arrested and, 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 and there's a dispute going on two years after he writes this book, a little bit over that, two and a half years or so. And in the, the, the turmoil there, he mentions that he's a Roman citizen. The moment he does that, all the hands are taken off him. And the governor of Jerusalem, the governor of, of that region, the Roman governor actually realises, I have to be careful how I handle this guy because he's a Roman citizen. Paul begins to talk in the book of Romans to the believers in Rome, not about them being Roman or some other citizenship, but that their citizenship is in heaven, that they are followers of Jesus, that they are God's people, and that their identity... How many of you know that identity is a huge issue in our society right now? Whether it's gender or, 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 or racial identity and, and ethnicity. And I understand that. But I want to say that the Bible is clear. That identity is about more than its component parts. No disrespect to any of those challenges that we're facing or the journeys that people are on. But I want to say, Paul says, in Rome, be sure about your identity. And at its 
simplest. He says, once we were like this, but now we're a new creation. When you come to Jesus, everything becomes new. No label is enough to define you other than Christ and his alone. And he begins to be the one that heals our identity issues. He begins to want to be the one that causes us to look beyond any restricted definition of who we are. And I want to say that Paul himself had defined himself as a Jew, as a fanatical Jew, as a zealous follower of God. But on that Damascus road, he gave up his old identity. Now Romans is real enough. In Romans chapter 7, he actually opens his heart, and he begins to say, hey, I have my times when I feel the most wretched man alive. I remember how I hated Christ. I remember how my old life was. And I feel like there's a war inside me. So he's not saying pretend and just gloss over. He's saying the real you surrenders to the real Jesus. And the real Jesus begins to release the real you that the Father intended. No limits, no boundaries, no blockages, no labels. But becoming the man, the woman of God that he's purposed you to be. So he says, guys, don't be afraid. In Rome, Jesus is going to make you his. He's going to begin to show you. That's why at times the Bible trying to describe us together doesn't resort to gender, doesn't resort to ethnicity, culture, our social position. It says, in Christ there is now no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, which was the description of their times. We are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery. Because sometimes we don't feel like one. We don't act like one. We're clumsy and messy in how we appreciate the the beauty of what God is doing in making us one. But he says, be clear about your identity. You are changed. You're not who you were, and you're not fully yet what you're becoming. But you belong to Jesus if you put your trust in him. The third and final thing is I bring this plane into land. Paul says in Rome, in the arena, in the place where you live, in the place where you work, in the, 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 the acquaintances that you're rubbing up against, the, the friends that you've got in your life, whether they're right now with Christ or not, realise that you need to be clear about your purpose and your life mission. Be clear about the gospel. God still saves people. He still pursues every single person, personally. Even if we feel like it's all up to us, actually he has a way of bypassing stuff, getting right into somebody's heart on a Damascus road or in a crisis or in the midst of the peak of fame and success. Suddenly they start to ask questions about the deep realities and Jesus is there. But also he says, be clear about your purpose and mission. Romans is one of those books that we turn to again and again to get encouraged about our purpose. It's the place that you will find that whatever's happening in life, Paul says something there about purpose. Remember that verse, Romans 8, 28? All things work together for good. Some of you know that one off by heart. To those who are called according to his purpose. He's not saying that only good things happen to people who believe in Jesus. We know that's not true. 
Hello? Have you noticed that? There's no immunity because we follow Jesus from the stuff of life. We go through the same things. There are ups and there are downs. But in the midst of that, he says there is a purpose that's being worked together for good, for the greater good of God's kingdom coming. And those who are called according to his purpose don't get distracted. They don't duck out of that. They don't run away when the, the going gets tough, but they press into his promises and they come through tough times. Can I land this by saying Jesus back in Matthew 24 as he's about to go to the cross and the disciples haven't got it yet that he's going to be crucified, he's really going to die and there's going to be a resurrection, hallelujah. But they don't get it and he says, look, about the future, guys, let me tell you, in the future, tough times are going to come. There will be, Jesus, of course, could see centuries ahead, but they were struggling to just see beyond the weekend. In the future, tough times will come. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be surprised. I'm telling you in advance. So wake up that one. Like Paul saying to the Romans in Rome, how are you going to live? It's time to live strong for Jesus where you are. Jesus says, tough times are coming. And I want to encourage you today. Believers in Jesus are not those that deny that there are tough times. But who know in the season of tough times, not to take their readings only from ground level, but to seek the will of the Father and to hold on. The church through previous seasons has been through some tough times. Around the world right now, there are some places we prayed for them earlier on where there is hardship and persecution and opposition and, and some are in prison and some are crying out to God. Lord, where are you? Where's the breakthrough? Tough times, Jesus said. But he said this, in the tough times, remember, it's harvest time. Matthew 24, it's harvest time. He says, this gospel will be preached in all the world and then the end will come. In other words, I'm not going to stop bringing harvest. There are people in our world right now, if our eyes were opened, they're that close to responding to Jesus, to giving their hearts and lives to him. Day in and day out, as a people that are faithful to him, in all the places where we are, we want to be able to see the leading of the Holy Spirit to be available to them. There's one more thing that Jesus says there in that same passage, tough times are coming, harvest time is now. Don't be dis distracted, it's harvest time. The third thing he says is it's about to be the Spirit's time. The Holy Spirit is about to be poured out. So you won't be in tough times on your own. You won't be in tough times just according to how well you can get through the day. My spirit will be in you and through you. Even in Rome. Even in London. Even in Lagos and Lisbon and anywhere else that rhymes with that. Even in Lebanon. And Jordan. And Australia. Even in America. He would go on to go to Rome. When he got there for about two years as a prisoner under house arrest, he has this amazing season where people come to him and he's able to build them up himself. Let's just bow our heads.
There's probably a thousand or more of us in the building today and many more listening, watching online. I can't know every one of you personally, but Jesus does. Just simply, I want to say there is a commitment that you can make today in the arena that you live in, that you work in, your community, your friendships, your circles of influence to say, Lord, I'm, I, I'm asking you to come afresh upon me. I'm asking you to fill me afresh to live for you where I am. Be clear about your life for myself and for others. To be clear about who I'm becoming. I surrender afresh to your renewing work to make me the person that, of, of mission and purpose that you've called me to. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, in this moment right now you can open the door of your life to say, Lord Jesus, I believe you came to save me. I want to receive you into my life. I want that changed life that Chris was speaking about this morning. Like Paul, like these that we've talked about. If you died for me, I want now to live for you. Just where you are now, make that your invitation. Only you can ask him in. and He will only come at your invitation. In Jesus' name, in the coming days, if that's your prayer today, tell somebody in this church, they will be delighted to help you to grow as not just a believer, but as a follower and disciple of Jesus who will never leave you or forsake you. God bless you.